Hey everyone, I'm really excited to have Will Manning on today. He is someone who I met while we were taking the Rite of Passage course earlier this year, or late last year, I believe, with David Perel. And since then, we both went deeper into the Rite of Passage ecosystem. Will basically went from doing full-time sales at larger companies like Oracle and went into the third or first employee rather uh, of the rite of passage for labs so building a second brain course which has been an insane transition i've noticed the improvements myself in the course and the actual delivery of it which has been really cool i went on to create the fellowship with david so in a lot of ways this is kind of catching up and circling back to from where we started so to me, this is going to be a really cool conversation. I know Will's doing a lot of interesting stuff around creating, running online courses. And that's something that we're seeing a lot of today, especially with COVID-19. A lot of schools, a lot of companies, a lot of individuals are starting up their own courses. And to me, Will is, if not an expert, becoming an expert. And I think, you know, just learning his ideas, learning all of the processes that go behind the courses will be really interesting to understand. So with that, we'll probably give it a couple of minutes just to introduce yourself. Yeah. Thanks, Susan. Thanks for having me on. Um, excited to be here. So as you mentioned, I was working in software sales last year at a couple of larger companies, took David's Rite of Passage course, the first cohort of Rite of Passage, which is this a uh, course that teaches you how to write, specifically writing online. I started last May. So May 2019, I was a student in the first cohort, was a student in the second cohort in August to September, which is when we met. And then I had some ideas about how to improve the course at the end of cohort two. So I sent David a note with some, some proposals. We ended up having a call. And then at the end of the call, he said, hey, these look great, but need someone to help me implement this. So I started part-time as a course manager for Rite of Passage for our third cohort, which was last November, December. And as that wrapped up, was brought on full-time to be course manager for Rite of Passage, as well as for all Forte Labs courses, which flagship course is Building a Second Brain, which is a uh, you know, course on using technology to strategically improve your productivity. So I have been in that role since January 1st, officially. And we have run one more Rite of Passage cohort in, in February to March and just finished on Wednesday, just finished version 10 of building a second brain. So learned a lot. It's been a fun ride so far, only seven, seven months in, but that is the, that's a bit of the backstory. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I don't want you to understate the amount of students you've dealt with in this <laughs> relatively short time period, right? I think, you know, what is it? 1200 students over three courses. That's, you know, way more, than the typical course manager or instructor. And that's really the power of online courses. You get to scale your audience, scale the number of students you deal with while sitting in your home. Right? Tell me a bit more about that. Definitely, yeah, we've grown a lot, which has been cool to see. As you mentioned, so Rite of Passage cohort three and four, both had just around 200 students. And then this last round of Building a Second Brain, we had 807 students. So. Wow. Uh, if you ever take Building a Second Brain, you get lifetime access to all future cohorts. And so uh, about 450 of those people were returning alumni and about 350 were new students for this first round, but 800 students total. 
so yeah, a lot of, a lot of learning goes on, you know, when you have that many students, what's cool is that the, the cohort nine or version nine of building a second brain, which wrapped up last October had, you know, there's a, there's a good number of students who were participating, maybe 100, 150, I can't remember, but the final live session only had nine students attending. Whereas our final live session on Wednesday, we had 255 students. So definitely a step change uh, in the size of the, the cohort. And we can kind of get into why that happened and, and, and how the course changes. But yeah, it's been great to see that kind of growth. And you just learn so much when you have that many students that you're designing online courses for. Totally. And so let's dial it back a bit. I think the sure. goal of the podcast overall is to go deep on the challenges, opportunities, and the nuance in terms of running an online course, or even let's call it an online school and where we see it going in the future. So online courses today is, you know, a, a very interesting topic. I think there's a lot of poor online courses, a lot of great ones as well, obviously. Let's talk about the different types of courses out there. You know, there's self-paced, there's, you know, webinars, you know, what really sets some apart from others in your eye? Yeah, good question. So a couple of ways we think about this. One way is that the, when online courses first got going, I remember sort of in the early 2010s, I remember hearing a lot of chatter about MOOCs, which, you know, the uh, massive open online courses were sort of repurposed university courses. And there's courses from places like Udemy and Coursera. Uh, the thing about those courses, they tend to have really low completion rates. You know, I'm talking even five, 10% completion rates. And a big part of the reason why uh, Seth Godin has done some interesting writing and speaking on this, where he talks about anytime you're learning something, inherently you're going into some unknown territory, which is hard and can be sort of frustrating. And when something is hard and frustrating and there's no like college diploma waiting for you at the end, it's very easy just to close your laptop and quit, which is why those courses have such a low completion percentage. So our courses are not just pre-recorded videos, but they're, they're live cohorts. And so you, you purchase the course during a very set open cart sales window, about two week period. And then you're in the course for five weeks. There's a series of live sessions each week. And we build a student community that's really strong, really vibrant from the live calls, from small groups that we create, from uh, community forum, things like that. And so having learning with a group of people that you get to know really well is one of the ways we get our completion percentage a lot higher than those older and more traditional forms of online learning. So that's one way we think about it. One other thing I'll mention, we have a marketing coach, Billy Bross, great guy. And he has talked about this idea of type one online courses versus type two. And type one would be similar to the earlier category I was talking about, but even more big ticket courses, say it's like a thousand dollars and they just have a big marketing budget and get a bunch of students to purchase and it's all pre-recorded videos and about 25% of people ask for refunds. That's like a type one course. That's fine. You can make a lot of money that way, but a type two course, what we aspire to be is uh, student centric. Like I mentioned, uh, live sessions, the instructors are taking the time to get to know students either on the forum or during the live calls. You know, I've done onboarding calls one-on-one -on -one with our students. And so just more student centric. That's, that's where we aim to be in the online course space. Yeah, I mean, sounds super intuitive, obviously a lot more effort to execute on because normally when you think about an online course, you think it's this is super scalable. There's a ton of one-time effort, but after that, you know, it, it's pretty hands-off. And I think that's normally the recipe for the type one course that you talked about. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of different features there. What are some of the underlying things that students are really asking for? And I have an opinion on this. 
I want to hear from you first when it comes to creating a great online course. Yeah, that's a good question. I think in a way, I almost think it's what, what are we delivering? It's, it's sort of, there's that Jeff Bezos line about you, you give the customer what they want, but they didn't know they wanted. So I almost feel it's a bit like that because it's, I think the thinking around online courses in general is so new. So it's, it's sort of like thinking about what can we deliver to students that will, will keep them engaged. And so one, one interesting note on that philosophically, you mentioned that idea of scaling. It's really funny because when I first started working with David part-time last October, everything he would tell me was like, Will, every process needs to be scalable. We got to be scale, scale, scale. Then we found this video from Patrick Collison, founder and CEO of Stripe from 2013. He gave this uh, about 10 minute speech on YouTube where he talks about how the number one thing you need to focus on in the early days of any company is just delighting your customers and maximizing customer happiness. And to do that, you do the things that don't scale. So it's actually counterintuitive. You want to focus on what doesn't scale. So to answer your question, the things that we do deliver to our students and things that don't scale. I mean, for example, when you sign up for the course for Rite of Passage, in the past two courts, we've done a one-on-one onboarding call. So I've done over 150 onboarding calls with our students uh, just to get to know them, understand their background, their goals for the course, answer any questions they have, really make you feel welcome. And I I think most online courses don't do something like that. And now we do group onboarding calls for Second Brain because the the size is so, so large. Yeah. Um, on top of that, there's other things like we have you know, broken the cohorts into smaller groups, right? Because if you're in a class of 200 people, it's very easy to feel anonymous. I mean, you're anonymous, it's very easy to drop off. Nobody notices that you leave. And there's this definition of community that we really like, which is a community is something where when you leave, people try to pull you back in. And so we've made these small groups to make a big class feel small, help people to get to know each other and kind of give it that community feel again, to reduce drop off. It's so easy for people to drop off when it's an online course. And most of our thinking and the way we structure the course is oriented around keeping people engaged so that they get the value out of the the full five weeks. Yeah. I think said differently, a big piece that a lot of online courses miss on is this idea of accountability. Right. I noticed this with the fellowship. It wasn't that the fellowship was teaching anything groundbreaking when it comes to writing long form essays, right? Writing is writing. Yeah. It's not rocket science. However, having a weekly call where you're accountable to the same group of people, ideally a group of people that you respect yourself, was a huge factor in just keeping people engaged. The other one, which I only started to get an appreciation of through the rite of passage course is getting instant feedback, right? A lot of times, you know, like 90% of the fellowship was all about just letting the fellows give feedback to each other. Even during the rite of passage course, when I took it, most of the time like that I enjoyed was really just getting feedback from other people, right? That, that requires zero effort, you know, on, on, on your part or David's part but it's probably one of the most valuable things you can provide to the students, which is super counterintuitive because if you sell someone on the idea of, Hey, we're just going to let you give feedback to each other. You know, I don't think people will buy it, but it's almost like to your point, the thing that they need, but they just don't know they need. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so funny bringing that up because I actually just remember now we exchanged feedback on articles back in August of last year. I don't know if you remember that, right? I think you wrote a, piece about, I think finance, something on those lines. And I had written a piece about like, it was, 
this analogy I had with a deck of cards and unleashing human potential. And so I, yeah. I just remember us exchanging feedback back then, which is cool because that cohort too is really when the course came alive for me. And a large part of it was because of that feedback. So we were, we were in it together back then. But yeah, feedback's our favorite word, especially with rite of passage. We all we say all day is feedback, 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 and really for both courses. But that's you know just a bit of a context on rite of passage. How it works is you you join and you right away you create a, a website and an email newsletter, and we talk about just how to how to how to capture information, how to generate content, and then how to actually write it in a compelling way, and then how to distribute and share it. So our motto is there's so much more to writing than just putting the words on the page. There's that whole back process and that whole after process and that whole lead up process feedback's key, right? So part of the course is you write an article every week, you share it in our course forum where you get feedback from your student group. We have a call every Sunday. We have a chance to get paired off one-on-one and get feedback. So yeah, it's really amazing when you have someone who is giving sort of full focus attention for a 30 minute feedback call on your article you've written, right? Once you leave school, you don't often have somebody giving that much focus attention to something intellectual that you've created. And yep. it was really great. I really kind of got, got hooked on that feeling of having people meet, read my writing and, and give me thoughtful criticism and comments on it and just get better. You just get better so much faster that way rather than just shouting into the void of just publishing your blog and, and getting no response. So. Yeah, totally. And it's unbiased feedback as well, which makes it even better. That's yeah, cool. I mean, you know, going you know to the context around rite of passage, I think the one other piece that makes this course super special, but also something that other courses can work on is the idea of just creating something that's meaningful. Like for me, coming out of the course, I now had this weekly newsletter. I had a website that had my own blog. Those are all things that I've learned to maintain and grow over the course of time for the past several months now, right? That is far more valuable than a certificate or a diploma or something of that nature yeah. that you know you put on your LinkedIn profile at best. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's something that people, again, don't really realize, but I think a lot of courses need to shift towards where you're not just telling people information, but you're literally helping them create something and you need to help them sustain it, right? I think the best courses support them through that entire process of creating something. And this goes to the you know, meta topic of just the fact that everyone is creating something, right? Whether it's kind of a, an Instagram account, right? Pursuing their passion, whether it's a blog, podcast, newsletter, so many other things. But I, I think you know, creating a course that enables people to actually create something that's tangible is super important. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, couldn't agree more. It's Another one of our mottos, shifting your, your mindset from being a consumer to being a producer. And it really is a mindset shift. I, I would actually call it an identity shift. And I've gone through this in the past few months. I imagine you have as well with the, with the long form essay and, and everything else. But nowadays, we're, there's so much information out there. One thing Tiago will say in building, Tiago Forte is the instructor for building a second brain. One thing he'll say is that it's not enough to call it information abundance. We really have this information exhaustion. There's just so much information thrown at us each day. As a result, most people just consume, consume, consume information. I was certainly in that boat. And for several years after school, I wanted to create things, but just so easy to, to, to passively consume, whether that's TV or movies or, or books or blogs or, or, or what have you. But with Rite of Passage, our whole emphasis is to change 
the way you consume, you don't consume for the sake of consumption. You consume with the intent to create. And when you do that, that creative side is a forcing function to consume better information and then to turn that better information that you consume into something, into a blog post. I mean, to, to give you an example, I write a weekly newsletter, Future Glance, and most people who go through Rite of Passage write their weekly newsletter. We're just talking how you have done 36 weeks of this newsletter. I've done 12 straight weeks. And because I have to put out this newsletter each week, when I consume information, I'm thinking, okay, is this something I could write about? Is this something that could be one of my links of the week in my weekly newsletter? It's this forcing function to make myself consume in a more focused way. I mean, it's a process. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but yeah, it's people think that there's, oh, I hear these things like, oh, there's so many blogs out there. There's so many podcasts out there. Why, you know, why do I need to create another one? It's like, well, no, there's really not, right? There's, of all the people who are out there, such a small percentage, definitely in the single digits are actually creating something. So everyone's consuming, consuming, consuming. And yet there's very few creators. So you're actually really early if you start creating right now, which is maybe counterintuitive, especially if people are on Twitter and see all these newsletters and blogs, but you're in the vast minority. And we, we all sort of see how quickly you can ladder up a bit of an audience and how cool it feels to then have an audience. And that's that identity shift. It's like, even if it's small, I have an audience waiting for a newsletter each week, as do you, as do most people who go through Rite of Passage. And that uh, identity shift is maybe the biggest piece of the, of the whole equation uh, with the course. Yeah, totally. And going deeper on that point, what are the types of people, companies, organizations who should be looking into creating online content, but even more specifically online courses? Yeah, interesting. So in terms of creating online content, I think... I think just about everybody should. If you're curious, if you like ideas, even if you think you don't, like you do, and you might just not realize it yet. But uh, I, I had this tweet recently, which is this idea that the I like history, so so stay with me here. But the idea is that yeah. the the printing press turned the masses into individuals. So before the printing press, people had this very their interpretation of the world is determined through the media you consume. And so before there were books and before there was literacy, people just viewed themselves as you know, subjects of the, the Catholic church and didn't view themselves as individuals and they became individuals in the printing press. Well, I, feel, I think the internet is turning individuals into creators or into artists, right? So everyone has some mix of ideas and interests and experiences that make you feel alive, that ignite your soul. We call that a personal monopoly. Everybody has that. So I think it's a much better use of your time to, to find that and then to, to do something about that, to go create something and find other people who share those interests rather than just you know, consuming, consuming all day. In terms of who should be creating online courses, I think it's, if you have a skill set, a lot of times we use this phrasing, obvious to you, amazing to others, but there's some, there's some skill or some knowledge that you have. There's a good chance that other people out there in the world might benefit from having that skill or that knowledge as well. And what's so cool about the internet, you have the global marketplace, right? There's no more limitation from space. And so with a few nudges of your thumb, you can sell to the whole world. And so, you know, you see people like, there's this guy, Nat Eliason, who just used Rome Research, this new application for note-taking. And within a few months, he got pretty good at it, made a hundred dollar course. And it's not that he's just trying to make a quick buck. It's that there's hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people at this point out there who are learning real valuable skills of how to use this complicated Rome Research tool because Nat had a skill, he productized it and he shipped it off into the world. So I think anybody who has something to some, some knowledge to offer could, could think about creating some type. You can start with free content. It doesn't have to be some big grand paid course right away, but 
you'd be surprised that people are, are willing to exchange value if they get value from uh, what you have to say. Yeah, totally. I think it's super interesting because it's essentially the moment you have a repeatable process that you know works, right? Yeah. It, you know, if you can use it to get employed, you can use it to answer a few questions consistently. Chances are you can create a course out of it. And just because someone out there may be doing a better job at it than you doesn't mean that you shouldn't be creating a course around it or creating content around it. I think you get into this imposter syndrome or imposter cycle where you're essentially running into situations where, oh, so-and-so does a better job of it. So-and-so has created a course on it, therefore I shouldn't. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the way you should look at it because even though there's that one individual out there, very few people know about that individual, right? And everyone kind of has their own circle. Everyone has their own audience, like you said earlier. And so there is such a thing as information and knowledge arbitrage. Yeah. Right. And so even though it's obvious to you, it may not be obvious to others. And so long as that's the case, chances are you can create content around it, perhaps a course around it, you know, just depends on how niche and how repeatable that specific skill set or knowledge, piece of knowledge is. Yeah, definitely. Well put. I, I totally get that feeling of thinking, ah, I've got something to say, but there's somebody else who probably has said this better, knows this better. It's such a common way to think. I've certainly thought that way myself. I get why. I think it is yeah. totally 100% wrong, right? If you're using that as a reason to not take action. Totally. I, I call it, I have this, we like to coin these terms with rite of passage. So I, I coined, this phrase I really like, I call it the intellectual bystander effect, right? You know, the bystander effect is, you, oh, you assume somebody else is going to intervene or, or help somebody in need, right? And it's that type of thing, right? You just, oh, somebody else is, knows more about, you know, X, Y, and Z. I don't, need to, I don't need to go share my knowledge. It's like, no, everyone, a couple of things. First of all, it's likely that you know something that's obvious to you and amazing to others. And the second of all, you create to learn. So as you start sharing and sharing publicly, that again, it's this forcing function, to learn and to get better yourself. So it's, it's about just sort of trusting yourself, not worrying what other people think and just, and just putting your signal out of the world. Like we talk about your, your writing, or if you make an online course or, uh, or just creating something on the internet, you're putting out this signal into the world. And most people aren't going to be tuned to your frequency. As we say, they're not going to care what you're creating, but the people yeah. who are tuned to your frequency are going to pick up on that signal. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to hear your signal and they're going to come back to you like a magnet. That's how you build an audience of people who are so specifically interested in, in what you have to offer. So yeah, it's just, this is all the underpinning theory of, of rite of passage, but we really believe in it. I mean, I know you do too, Susan. we've talked about this, so it's just, it could go on and on, but it's uh yeah, we really believe in just, it's important to, if you have something to say, to, to say it, or, or if you have something to create, create it and just take action. Yeah. I think a supplemental piece to the online course is, the idea of creating a community, which yeah. is a challenge, right? A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people want to create one. I think people see the value of it now just from all the value you see in marketplaces and communities in general. What are some of the things that make a community special? Like how do you actually build that community? Definitely. So there's a, there's a few ways we think about this. I mean, first of all, in order to build a community around an online course in particular, you, you need to have the right mindset. You need to have that student centric mindset, that type two mindset, because it just goes right up there with the Patrick Carlson things that don't scale, right? If you're just trying to have a thousand dollar course and have really strong SEO and a big marketing budget, 
and just do pure volume, you're, you're not going to be able to optimize for volume and also optimize for student experience and community. So you have to, first of all, just have that mindset and you might not make quite as many dollars in the first you know year, two, three years, but we think it builds a much stronger foundation. Actually, I have this quick analogy. It's like, uh, I don't know if you're ever in, you know, Boy Scouts or anything like that. You had to build a fire or you go camping, you got to build a campfire. Right. And there's two ways to build a campfire or to, to have to have a fire. One is uh, people used to do this thing where they get lighter fluid or bug spray and just it's like strike a match and you just have this big burst of flame, but then it goes away. And the second way is to just slowly but surely have, have kindling and light a match and be patient. And over time, the fire builds slowly, but your fire compounds on itself. The, the, the wood falls in and becomes embers and those embers become really hot and they fuel the fire. And eventually you can build this massive bonfire that lasts. Now, I think that's how I would describe the way we look at building online courses. Um, so to get, to get practical with it, it starts with setting the tone. When students purchase your course, what kind of experience do they get? The moment they hit buy, what do they get? And so with us, we have a, a welcome email that you get. There's a welcome letter. There's a welcome video. There's what we call an initiation workshop, which is a series of steps that you complete before the course starts. Or write a passage that's setting up your newsletter, setting up your website, watching the first video module. Uh, I mentioned the onboarding calls. That's something that I just decided we were going to do after hearing this video from Patrick Carlson about yeah. things that don't scale. And who better to listen to than you know the CEO and founder of the biggest unicorn in the Silicon Valley? Right. Uh, we really bought into that, and so again, I, I had I did it's kind of crazy in hindsight, but did one on one calls with every student who was who who wanted to schedule one for cohorts three and four of Rite of Passage. So I did about seventy calls and about eighty calls, so hundred fifty calls. They were half an hour. Some of them went longer. It was a lot of time invested, but that was half of it was to actually exchange the information of you know, what's your background? What questions do you have? I think the other half was just like an act of good faith. Like, Hey, we want to take the time to, to schedule these calls and to, and to get to know you. And so that's sort of the mindset. And I don't know what what your thoughts are on that, but there's, there's more to it, but I'll, I'll just sort of pause there and and see what you think. Yeah, no, I, I think the mindset is definitely important. A lot of people think they're user centric, but really aren't. And I think, you know, efforts like the, you know, like you just said, calling every student, talking with them, getting to know them. Those are all critical things. And as unskillable as they sound, I'd argue that the most important thing you can be doing in your role is talking to the students, right? Like if, you know, in a course of three months, if you aren't able to at least talk to the student, let's say, you know, within a certain range, I think within a certain like cohort range, I think you know, it's pretty hard to succeed at your job, right? You almost have to be talking to them. And I think very few people have that mindset because normally when you think online, you think internet, you think and anything related to the internet, you think scale, right? And you think about all the things that you don't have to do, right? You always have this mindset of like, okay, now that it's online, now that it's digitized, I automatically should be thinking about efficiency, right? Because you're comparing yourself to a fully scaled version, right, of a LinkedIn, of a Airbnb, of all these other communities, online yeah. marketplaces. Yeah. That, and you're comparing it to the end product of those. You're not looking at how they started, right? Because guaranteed Airbnb was doing face-to-face conversations, calling people, all sorts of unscalable stuff to get started before they had this kind of strong community or bonfire, right, that they were able to build. But 
unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of steps to get there. And, and, you know, people try to skip those steps with the dream of trying to build or fast tracking the build of, you know, a massive online community. And I think it starts super slow. It's, you know, it's a very slow slope, especially in the beginning, right? And, and over time can really fester and grow. But, you know, another piece is just patience as well, right? Continuing with it for a very long period of time Definitely. and, you know, being able to slowly adjust, right? Like those 1% changes that just compound over time versus trying to look for massive inflection points. Yeah. Because those 1% changes while you're doing it feel incredibly slow, incredibly painful. But when you look back on it, you know, in reality, it didn't take a ton of time. Uh, yeah. Quite honestly, probably didn't take a ton of effort, right? Um, felt painful at the time, not as painful when you look back on it. So I think it's those yeah. things that really matter. Um, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a good way to look at the compounding is uh, Tiago, his second brain course, right? Where he has Forte Labs has been a company for six years now. And building second brain has had 10 cohorts started in early 2017. And it took this long, but I, I talked to Tiago the night before building a second brain cohort 10 launched. And we had this long call to prepare all the final finishing touches for the live session the next morning. And we're kind of reflecting on the size of the cohort. And I asked him, what does it feel like to be starting a cohort with this many students, 800 students? And he said, you know, it feels like the inflection point in the hockey stick graph. Right. We all know from the compounding growth, yeah. it's a long lead up and then you suddenly start to grow real quick. And yeah. uh, it just feels like that's the point we're at. And it's all a lot of it due just to the hard work that he did for all those years to, to get us as a, as a small company to that point. So I, yeah, yeah I mean, that stage is incredibly painful, right? Yeah. Usually requires like four or five years of like seeing next to no return on the time you put in, right? Yeah, and, you know, requires yeah. you to constantly build expertise, share content, uh, all sorts of stuff to be seen as an expert, right? Because there's no credential for productivity, right? There's no credential for writing in David's case, right? And so those are all things that I think uh, are, are super interesting and, you know, very, very inspiring. Yeah. Well. Thing, I feel like that's, it's funny that that long tail of growth is, that's what most people who have gone through Rite of Passage are going through right now, right? I feel like right. you, me, uh, look at Joe Wells is publishing a ton, Solomon. There's always uh, Anna Fabrega has been, and she's grown a little quicker. Her Twitter audience has really leveled up quick, but I feel like a lot of us are in that yeah. early phases. Lev, you know, we see everyone just publishing, publishing, publishing. And, and Joe Wells wrote a really great point about this, a uh, really good essay about this uh, last week where it just sometimes feels like you're shouting into the void, but then yeah. occasionally somebody will reply back and say, Hey, I really loved your essay or, Hey, uh, this really made me think about something. You know, Joe had a story where he had published uh, a, a bunch of pieces, hadn't heard much back. And then the turned out the documentary filmmaker, Sebastian Younger had read a couple of his pieces and had sent it to some people who'd been in his documentary. So you just, that validation comes, I think, but you got to be patient with, getting no response for a while and we're just in that early long tail which is yeah it may not be as tangible as numbers either right i think definitely uh, a lot of times people chase the numbers subscribers all that kind of stuff it it may not come in that form right or in dollars in the case of like an online course but if you can make a meaningful impact in like you know a a smaller group of people's lives you know that to me is just as fulfilling as well so i mean let's go deeper into the actual mechanics of running a course now. Um, sure. What kind of 
what kind of tools do you use? What does that workflow look like for you? Yeah. So I break it into three different phases. So there's the pre-cohort phase, lasts about six weeks. There's the actual delivering the course, which lasts five weeks in our case. And then there's sort of the post-cohort recap, lasts about two weeks. So the pre-cohort phase is design, right? Each round of these courses we do, we implement a bunch of changes that ends up being what we call our version notes uh, document where we document each round and what changed in that round. So you can see the tangible improvements course to course. But uh, yeah, that first phase is about six weeks. And each time I will do feedback calls with students from the previous cohort, review our uh, uh, completion surveys to see you know what needs to be changed. And then, and then find a focal point for that course redesign because it's so easy to fix a bunch of little tweaks that don't actually add up to that much. There's a guy, somebody on Twitter had, had, a, had a tweet that David and I both really liked, which is focus on problems one and two and let the other 98 burn, right? So you, you, it's so easy just to do little aesthetic tweaks, but instead find that core thing that's really going to make a big difference. So for rite of passage between cohort three and four, for example, was how do we make the student experience a lot stronger? And so we, I put together a, a, a memo, a, a nine points of here's how we're going to improve our student experience, this big Google Doc. And then we just went ahead and executed week after week leading up to the cohort. We executed sort of building out student groups. We built that an alumni mentor program and we built new mechanisms for feedback and just wanted to make the student experience as strong as possible. So you, you put all those changes in place uh, and my focus in my role as course manager is the student experience and operations. At the same time, there's sales and marketing activity happening, which I, I help David with. And Tiago does more of the marketing just because he's done it for so many rounds. It's, it's, it's a bit more systematized. But yeah, so those are sort of the, the, the four buckets, student experience, operations, sales, and marketing. Right. You run that for the first six weeks. With two weeks to go, your cart opens. So people actually start purchasing the course. So you, you got to be ready with some of that student experience stuff. And then you get into the live course itself, which of course, you know, five weeks, you're running live sessions, you're sending takeaway emails, you're doing weekend bonus sessions, you're answering customer service emails. And then uh, a lot happens, but the course starts, happens and ends. And then there's two weeks to review the, the completion survey. For Second Brain, we are in our two-week implementation period, we call it, where we're still on call to help students with any questions they have about implementing the systems. And then you wrap up, catch your breath, and, and do it all over again for the next yeah. course. So yeah. that's, sort of the, that's sort of the cadence, yeah. Yeah. Go deeper on the live session itself, because to me, that's what makes Rite of Passage, Building a Second Brain, really special. Yeah. It's not just some recorded webinar. It's not some, you know... It, it, it feels genuine. It feels you know very specific to that cohort as well. Obviously, as things scale, things may change. But tell me more about how the actual live session is run. Definitely. So the before you come to the live sessions, you watch the unit lecture videos. We call them the module videos for Rite of Passage. But there is a pre-recorded course content, right? And that's just your, your basic information about our philosophy about writing online for Rite of Passage for Second Brain. That's Tiago's philosophy of, of organizing your world of digital notes. So you watch that. It's called a flipped classroom where you watch the lecture content beforehand. And then live sessions are reserved for David sharing, David or Tiago, let's, let's take Rite of Passage, right? So David sharing his, his experience with, with writing online and, and the whole writing process grappling with the course material that you've already watched in these unit videos and 
really just being collaborative or it's not just this unidirectional of, of the teacher lecturing to the politely listening students, but it's just bi-directional collaboration. Uh, so it's a 90 minute session. We open the session with you know a couple of announcements, like the highlight of student who wrote a really good article that week. Then we jump into breakout rooms. So the, the course is delivered over Zoom and Zoom allows you to divide students into rooms. We usually do either two or three students. You have a very specific prompt, one question, 15 minutes to go and, and talk about that prompt for the you know, topic for that day, then come back to a group discussion, share what you talked about in your breakout room. Then we typically move into about 25 minutes of the, sort of the meat of the session, the, the content where David will talk about whatever is, is on the, uh, on the docket that day. And then we'll do sometimes a live demonstration, then a second breakout room, and then sort of end with announcements, assignments, and, uh, and a final party thought, some type of story that sums up what we talked about that day. So that's, that's the general cadence of, of a 90 minute session. But things I'll mention is that, you know, it's, it, it's important. We were actually talking with a, a lady who has a PhD in adult education theory this morning. And she was saying that kids and adults education is very different for, for adults. They, they want it to be interactive. They don't want just this sort of transmission style learning where you're just, I mean, it's like trying to fill up a cup with knowledge. It's, you want to, again, grapple with it, have discussions, go into small groups. And then they also want to share their experiences because a lot of the people in our course have a lot of great experience. So when we open up these discussions, it's not just a theoretical abstract discussion about writing. It's like, Hey, I've, I've tried this, this worked well. I've, I've sent these types of cold emails before. These are the habits I use when I, when I'm reading a really good article, how I say that information, right? So people are sharing their experiences. It's not just this passive listening. Right. Totally. And I think a lot of great points there. I think the power of the breakout rooms are super key. Also keeping the sizes small so that no matter how big the course gets, you're always interacting in groups of two, three people. Yeah. which is super important. I think people make the mistake of kind of honing down the, or, you know, trying to making or making the breakout room slightly bigger, which isn't great. I think it's really important to keep the breakout room small. And another interesting part that you do is you're not in every single breakout room, right? Kind of right. let the students talk with each other, right? Which is counterintuitive because a lot of people who are trying to being, try to be student centric often feel like they need to be a part of every conversation kind of like that teacher that's overbearing trying to like like you know very like coordinate every single detail that goes on in that experience a lot of rite of passage involves chaos right and just letting people kind of digest that question right and it's not always perfect but i think that's also a really big differentiator versus other breakout rooms that may happen where you know, you need to, I only have five people from my team. Therefore, I could only have five breakout rooms. Well, that's not going to scale, yeah. nor is it going to be beneficial for the student's experience because yeah. you're going to inevitably run into this transmission style conversation because whoever is doing the coordination or whoever is kind of facilitating the dialogue will inevitably run most of the dialogue and talk yeah. the most as well. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it changes the dynamic. If even sometimes David and I would do this thing where you drop into a room just to check on how it's going, and you can just feel the energy shift when uh, somebody who's organizing the course, or especially David, you know, the lead instructor drops in. And I mean, occasionally we'll do it, but mostly you're right. We like it to be this bottom up process where you just get to first of all, you get to meet people from all around the world. Yeah. Super cool, uh, amazing people who take these courses, and then 
you just have to get to have your own discussion. I mean, I'm curious what you think. When I was in Rite of Passage for, for round one and two, I love the breakout rooms. In some ways, it was my favorite part because I like to meet Absolutely. people. I like to talk. You know, it's like you're kind of uh, – the, the spotlight is, is back on you and, and your group. And so that's fun. And it kind of wakes people up. Like yeah. we had one, we had one, definitely our worst live session we've run. I mean, it wasn't a disaster, but cohort three, like session four or five, we only had one breakout room and it was like 70 minutes of lecture. And then we could just tell things were off and we were like, okay, never again. We always need to break it up twice. Even if it's yeah. only 10 minutes, we always do the breakout rooms. And yeah, you, you really just get these other perspectives on what you're learning right because it's not like there's just some just set in stone curriculum like you might be like a high school course where these are the facts you must learn this whole process of how to best write online it's 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 an emerging thing it's fluid right everyone has different things that have worked for them or different perspectives so yeah you just want to hear from the other people in the class see what they have to say yeah my you know, people i've met in breakout rooms go on to become you know pretty good friends and you know i'm sure we yeah. were in a breakout room at some point so it's just cool yeah. that that's that's where a lot of these relationships in the community you know building really starts as well yeah because you're essentially for like i've already made the time commitment to be there yeah right? yeah instead of listening to someone else talk because quite honestly i can like this podcast is like recorded videos yeah. i can do that to me, the value was always from the breakout rooms where I didn't know who I was going to meet. It was yeah. always random, which is great. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, in the case when the cohort was smaller, you know, you, you tend to repeat, you tend to meet people more than once, which was, which was also great. But uh, what was also cool is just, you know, you meet someone new, you learn about them. That introduction alone, pretty valuable. I met some pretty yeah. cool people yeah. through that. And then now when you get feedback from them outside of the course, right, it actually means something. It's like a relationship at that point, right? You're subscribing to each other's newsletters, you're following them on Twitter, right? And you actually notice all these small things and it feels a lot more meaningful from that. And, you know, coming out of the course, now you got something that's tangible, right? Like a a bit more of an asset, also like some meaningful relationships, right? People who especially given the global nature of rite of passage of building a second brain is super cool. Cause I have no business meeting you right, or anyone else really from rite of passage. In fact, I'm probably more closer from other people I've met, not the people I've met in Toronto, right? Like geography becomes less, if anything, not even a factor, right? Which is unique to online courses. It's kind of the magic behind it, but I think very few people capitalize on it because you know, you're so stuck to, okay, got to have your Toronto chapter. You got to have like all these like physical barriers that aren't really necessary anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a mindset shift. I think it'll change in the 2020s and especially with, with the current crisis. I mean, my goodness, but even yeah. before the crisis, this thing we would say, I think David said this originally, which is the 2010s is where online dating was normalized. And the 2020s would be the decade when online friendship was normalized. And right. like, another thing David said recently, which which I thought was a good point, is that uh, it'll be actually kind of common in, in, say, eight to 10 years to have a best friend who you've never even met, but you have such similar interests. And that's how I feel about people I meet with Rite of Passage, man. It's like right. on paper, you'd have, you might meet someone you you would think you have nothing in common with. Like there's a guy in Bangalore, uh, Srinidhi. He was from Cohort yeah. 2 as well, actually. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, you know, we're, we're very different backgrounds on paper, no matter how you no matter how you look at it, just come from completely different places yeah. and cultures. But we had both read this book, The Sovereign Individual, which is like one of the yeah. five greatest books I've ever read. And yeah. we just bonded over it. Like we were in a breakout room. We found out we read this book and we kind of geeked out and 
oh gosh, we had like a 90 minute zoom call, like after the cohort ended and right. talked about that. And I just, you know, yesterday I saw there's a guy, Alejandro, he was in cohort four right. and we had a great intro call that kind of got cut short. So we agreed to talk after second brain ended and we were jamming for like two, two hours on ideas about like philosophy. I'm just getting into philosophy and he's like, right. you know, all this crazy stuff. And you know, you're not going to, I'm not going to like walk down the street in LA and find someone who's obsessed with philosophy or it's pretty unlikely. But again, you, you put the signal out in the world. And one way you put your signal out is by choosing to take right of passage associate oh. the type of person who takes right of passage is more likely to be into that. So I'm, I'm sure you have similar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what led to the fellowship yeah, and all kinds yeah. of crazy stuff. So um, yeah, no, definitely can relate. Yeah. One last question. What is it about the past six, seven months, however long, you know, you, you've been doing this that has surprised you the most? I mean, you went from being a student to an instructor, so you can't really claim the actual like course itself was surprising. So just curious to know. Yeah. How open the world is or how malleable things are. There's a Steve Jobs quote about, you think the world is a certain way, it has to be that way, but it's only that way because somebody decided it must be that way, right? And that's how I feel with creating these online courses. There's so much freedom and autonomy. Coming from a, a corporation where I could only sell a certain set of products, a certain set of customers, and you're so boxed in, right? Kind of like a caged bird. And then when you're let out, it's disarming. It's like the, yeah. It's like the internet. Like you can do whatever you want. Like if, if we decide we want to have a mentor program, okay, we're going to have a mentor program, right? We decide we want right. to make these student groups or feedback groups for the course. We're going to do that. If we decide we want to have a webinar where we talk about how to use Twitter better, we're going to do that. And you know, yeah. David has an audience. We're going to get a couple hundred people to join that. There's just so much freedom when you're building stuff on the internet and having been at a place where it was sort of the opposite of freedom. It's just, it's just an amazing feeling to be at a place where you can just have an idea, write a memo, send it to the team. And then that idea becomes an actual component of the course that affects students' lives directly. So I love that feeling. Uh, I mean, right. I used to, you should be answering this question with uh, the, the fellowship and that's literally what you did was go to yeah. David and say, Hey, I have an idea. And, and then next thing you know, David sends out a tweet and there's a rite yeah. of passage fellowship program, right? So it's just so cool to be in that mindset. It's, it's such yeah. a possibility focused mindset. Like what do we want to create next? So, yeah. 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 And it was, especially for me, it was just like interacting with David pretty closely. Like that was one of the biggest things I learned is like, if you want to do something, just do it. Yeah. Uh, and it also showed me the power of having that audience as well. Like yeah. just being able to throw ideas out there, see what resonates no doubt build something based on that that to me was pretty interesting yeah can i add one other thing actually that i'm, I'm sure you'd agree with this too but it kind of goes hand in hand with this it's like having an idea having an idea and then acting on it and having this yeah. bias for action that's what i've learned from right working with david and tiago right like they are part of what they're so good at is just having this extreme bias towards action where in the past yeah. i might be on a call with somebody and like we're talking like oh this would be a good idea for a a blog post or a this or a that. And like, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll do that one day. You know, yeah. I'm on a call with David now and, and, and uh, somebody will have an idea. He'll be like, oh, that's a really cool idea. Let's do it Thursday, right? Let's do it. And we, yeah. and we do, yeah. we implement stuff. And so I'm right. learning to have that bias for action. And I think that makes all the difference in the world, creating yeah. stuff online. You just have to act and have yeah. to move quickly. So yeah. it's a learned skill, but I'm, I'm learning it. So yeah. uh, totally yeah, awesome. Man. I mean, this has been a great conversation, I, I think. You know, we touched on a lot of different topics around online content, around online courses, education overall. Really enjoyed it. And, and yeah, really grateful for 
to have you along. I think uh, you're on this super interesting journey and it, I wouldn't be surprised if you end up creating your own course on how to create online courses, <laughs> just given the amount of work and thought you're putting into this. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, into that. I was going to say, I mean, I look forward to you teaching a, a long form writing course pretty soon after all that you've learned. So. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, man, thanks for having me on. This is, this is really cool uh, yeah. that you're doing this. So appreciate awesome. it. Awesome. Thank you. Chat soon. All right. Later. Yeah.